This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Mercado and Manning podcast. I'm James Manning. Joining me as he does every week, Andrew Mercado. Welcome back, Andrew. Thank you, James. Hello. Look, gee, we've talked about this before, but keeping up with this content is a challenge, isn't it? You know, the, um, there is so much, so much dropping all the time. Um, this week, we've got another sort of smorgasbord of, of uh, drama to look at and, and a few other things. I want to get to um, um, non-drama content. Like I want to talk about Piers Morgan a bit later in the um, episode today. We'll also talk about the repair shop. But I thought we'd yep. start with Paramount Plus today. Now, I remember, and we might have mentioned this too, I, Paramount Plus, to be honest, had a bit of an underwhelming offer when it first launched um, last year. But, gee whiz, in the last few weeks, they've had some pretty impressive um, stuff they're putting out, you know, just just some amazing content. Halo was one of the big shows that sort of premiered uh, in the US and Australia well, and globally. And I think at the time Paramount Plus said, look, it's our, our biggest launch ever. But since then, the content just kept coming. Um and a couple of things we'll probably start with this week. The first thing was the, uh, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and a TV series this time based on the same book that was used for the 1980s film from Nicholas Roge, which starred David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, that was a movie, of course. This time they've turned it into a TV series. And I've got to say, I watched that first episode, and look, I'm not a big sci-fi guy, right? But yeah, I got... I. This sort of sucked me in. I got really into this, and I was by the end of that first episode, I wanted to know what was coming next. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I would have. Uh, I've not yet watched it, uh, and I've never seen the original film starring David Bowie. But given that was David Bowie's, I thought film debut, it wouldn't have been in the eighties. It was made mid seventies, I'd say. Um, so yeah. You reckon that them now taking their time and making this a longer series, you're sucked in from the first episode. Will you watch more? I, I will. Yeah, definitely. They are, um, I think they're only dropping one a week at the moment. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you're right. That was uh, 76, that movie came out. Yeah. And, look, I had a quick look. I'm not sure where you can watch that um, movie these days. But, look, it had a pretty interesting cast too in addition to David Bowie. I mean, uh, Rip Torn was in it, Candy Clark, Buck Henry. So it was um, wow. it, it was pretty interesting stuff. But this um, this TV series now, with the, excuse me on this pronunciation, but Chiwetel Ejiofor, I think was <laughs> was as close as I'll get. Um, he's sort of the the lead character in this called Faraday. He, he, yep. he comes from he comes from the story is he arrives on planet Earth from another planet, right? And yep. his his mission is to find out how to save his planet. His planet right. is is experiencing all sorts of problems. It's in another galaxy far away, and he um he targets uh, Naomi Harris, who who is sort of a bit of a um she's a I don't know what she's sort of a she's got a science background, but she just works in a sort of mundane job because she, she wasn't able to pursue a career like that. And he's ident- they've identified her as having the intelligence they need. So, you know, he lands, he can't speak the language. 
Um, he doesn't know how to behave like Earth people do. So, so these two team up and she takes him out in public and she has to tell people, oh, look, he's on the spectrum because he just <laughs> he doesn't know how to behave. But but wow. that alone is 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 quite interesting, and um, so today, have they updated the story to twenty twenty two? Do you think, or is it set in the same? They have, yeah. No, no, it's it's set set in the current days. Yeah, um, Martha Plimpton's also got a role in it as a uh, police officer, and um, Bill Nye of all people turns up too in this sort wow. of um, in this sort of guest role, if you like. But I, look, I think it's well worth uh, investigating, and it's made me really want to go back and dig up that movie, which must be on a streaming service, or you can probably rent it on one of the platforms. You um, think that Stan might have the original film? Sorry, Paramount Plus might have the original film. If you're going to screen the remake, you might as well get the rights to the original one because so many people, when they watch a remake, do go in search of the original material. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Look, also coming from um, from Paramount Plus this month has been the First Lady. Now, I, I think we uh, have differing views on this one, but I've got to say, I sort of, I, I quite love this one too. Um, some uh, amazing actors from amazing acting from the three leads of Viola Davis, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Gillian Anderson. Now, I know you talk about this in your Media Week column this week, and you're not quite as wrapped in it as I am. No, I'm not. I think it's a hot mess. So you've got three wives, Eleanor Roosevelt, played by Gillian Anderson, Betty Ford, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and uh, Michelle Obama, played by Viola Davis. And the timeline jumps around between each of them. There's no rhyme or reason to those time jumps, though. It just has a bit of Eleanor Roosevelt and then suddenly we're in the 70s with Betty Ford, then whoop, we're with Michelle Obama. Oh, now they are, there they are as kids. So there's six timelines it's jumping about. And I don't feel that there's a theme to why it's jumping about. It's just a whole bunch of unrelated stories, except for the fact that they're all first ladies living in the White House. And I'm sorry, I found Gillian Anderson's performance with those fake teeth playing Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> I thought I, 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 it was like a comedy skit. For me, the only story that interested me and would make me want to watch it was Michelle Pfeiffer playing Betty Ford because we know that story. We can see that she's day drinking and she has a problem with alcohol. We know that she's an alcoholic who establishes the Betty Ford Clinic. That's a story I'm interested in knowing more of. But... The first lady isn't giving me anything in regards to Eleanor Roosevelt or Michelle Obama. I just found it really dull and boring. Wow. No, I look, I enjoyed it. I, that didn't worry me, that flipping around. I mean, yeah, there doesn't seem much reason about But I just thought that the historical snapshots is the way I saw it. Um, I, I would imagine it's quite accurate historically. So I just yeah. found it as, um, as almost sort of a docudrama you know i was learning things about um about um fdr um and his sort of his diagnosis for polio because that's sort of covered early in that first episode i was learning things about the obamas and when they first went to the white house and that that first episode covers how the bushes showed them uh, showed particularly michelle obama took her on the white house tour um 
And um, and yeah, look, you're right. Michelle Pfeiffer has the best um, the best role. She plays up Betty Ford, and um, it starts with sort of Gerald being appointed VP. Um, Betty Ford was a reluctant politician's wife. You know that's yeah. um, that that's covered quite well, and she does a great job portraying it. And for anybody who's interested, this um, the current issue of the Hollywood Reporter has a wonderful uh, interview with um, Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, she doesn't do a lot of media, just like she doesn't do a lot of acting these days. And it's quite fascinating to, to read about it. She's, she's as reluctant an actor as Betty Ford was a reluctant politician's wife. That's wow. just sort of, um, that's the comparisons I got from, from this article. In fact, Mich- Michelle Pfeiffer often backs out of acting commitments after she makes them and she changes her mind uh, so much so that her team that she works with her, her agents and stuff like that, refer to her as Dr. No. <laughs> uh-huh. Because she might have some interest and they might talk her into something, but she'll come back and say, no, look, I've, I've decided I don't really want to do this. Um, but, yeah, I, I thought it was good. I mean, the husbands are pretty good too, I thought, in, in this. I think Aaron Eckhart plays um, Gerald Ford. Yep, um, yep. I, I thought he was he was pretty interesting. Um the um, who else? Keith um, Sutherland plays FDR. FDR. Yep, yep. You know, the oh, only um, thing I remember about Gerald Ford in the seventies was that his favourite TV show was Angie Dickinson in Policewoman because one night he moved his address to the nation because it was going to clash with Policewoman, and it got out that he was clearly a big fan of the show. You know, that's well, the other thing I remember about Gerald Ford is he fell over a lot. He kept you know, falling down the stairs of Air Force One and stuff like that. But seriously, I know more about Betty Ford and what she did for, you know, rehab and, you know, celebrities going to her clinics in the 1980s like Elizabeth Taylor. You know, she really brought um, alcoholism and, and addiction out into the open and I think she's done so much good by speaking publicly about her alcoholism. That is the story I'm interested in in The First Lady. And um, also Dakota Fanning plays Susan Ford, the daughter of um, of uh, Gerald and um, and Betty. Wow, and that's I didn't a, think that. yeah, that, that's a great. Oh, Alan Burstyn too. Well, how can you not love Alan Burstyn? Um, oh, no. who was I think who was FDR's mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It, it's it's funny though when you say about the fake teeth. I mean, yeah. I, I, I automatically think of, uh, gee, did they have the same um, person working <laughs> on the lookers? Maybe work with Rami Malek on the, as Freddie yeah. Mercury on Bohemian Rhapsody. It's got that same sort of, um, that same sort of prominent teeth, which do do seem to be overdone a little bit. And there, there is a bit, a bit of a disadvantage of uh, the Eleanor Roosevelt character because. You know, most of us watching it aren't old enough to have lived through her. So, you know, I don't know a lot about her historically. Um, I mean, the last time I saw Eleanor Roosevelt in pop culture was in The Prom when Meryl Streep is playing her in a Broadway musical that flops at the beginning of the show. So, yeah, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I kind of had a bit of trouble taking all that seriously. Yeah. Um, something coming from... Um Paramount Plus in the next couple of weeks is super pumped. The battle for Uber, which sounds pretty um pretty interesting. It's the it's all the go at the moment. These um stories about these tech startups 
um, are getting turned into dramas as well as documentaries. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the WeWork one um, a couple of episodes ago. This one's um, got uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as um, mm-hmm. Travis, I think, is it Kalanick, who was the um, sort of guy who, who had the idea for Uber and got, got that off the ground. So that sounds pretty fascinating. And Kyle Chandler's also in it. Uh, yep. Uma Thurman plays Ariana Huffington in, wow. in this one. Uh, Elizabeth Shue's also in it. So that sounds really fascinating. So that's something else to watch out for. I mean, if you haven't dabbled into Paramount Plus, now could be a good time. I think they've still got a um, a trial period. So if you, you know, if you if you get on board in May sometime, you might be able to um, chew through a bunch of uh, quite good programs and maybe decide if you, if you want to keep it going. And, of course, um, the series that's starting this weekend on Paramount Plus that I am hanging out to watch is The Offer, which is the making of The Godfather, uh, especially coming out this year because it's the 50th anniversary of the film. I've seen the trailer, and the trailer does seem a little bit obsessed with the real-life mafia figures who are saying, we don't want a movie made about the mafia. I, of course, am more interested in the making of the movie with, you know, casting Brando and all of that stuff should be fascinating. Uh, I'll be watching that this weekend on Paramount Plus for sure. The offer can't wait. Yeah, you've stolen my thunder. That was my going to be my little tip at the end. Um, the the offer. I, yeah, I can't wait for this one. How good does this sound? You know, a, a drama about the making of The Godfather. I mean, it's, it's just going. The greatest movies ever made. You know, there's a there's a lot of film scholars uh, that say it is. You know, it's right up there with Citizen Kane, and uh, it's a very very important film in cinema. So it definitely deserves a TV treatment like this on the making of. Yeah, the um, uh, I was going to say Tim, we talked before about the Man Who Fell to Earth. Well, Paramount Plus have the three Godfather movies on the platform as well. So it's um. You know, you've got a big chunk of time to watch them because they're all quite long. Um, the original, the second, and the final one, I think, which is subtitled The Death of... Um, Not so great, that third film. I mean, the first two are absolute hands-down classics. In fact, many people say The Godfather Part Two is a better film than the original, and it's very rare for people to think that a sequel is better than the original. Yeah, I think the sequel won something like six Oscars. I mean, it's, it was pretty amazing. It really dominated. But then there's a, there's a lot of divided opinion, though. I think when the second one came out, a lot of people dissed it. Some people said it was just uh, offcuts from the first one. But then some people think the third one's better than the first two. Yeah. So there's, there's quite a lot of divided opinion. But but in the, the offer, I mean, there's characters portraying, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, that Mario Puzo, who wrote the, the original novel, of course, um, Robert Evans, the sort of famed Hollywood producer who, who ha- helped get it off the ground. Um, there's also actors portraying cast members, you know, Marlon Brando, uh, Ali McGraw um, is, is, um, is amongst that. Frank Sinatra crops up, Al Pacino. Um, some of the detail, even Peter Bart, who was, I think, a... A variety, one of the you know, editors of Variety back in the day. Um, so it's, it really takes you behind the scenes and it, um, yeah, it should be a, a, an amazing piece of TV. If you think The Godfather Part 3 is the best <laughs> film in that movie, you need to get the <laughs> <in> James. 
Oh, I didn't say it's that. Like, I said oh, that that's the I, but I, that's the one with uh, Robert De Niro, isn't it? The third one. No, the, no, the Godfather one? Part Three made years and years after all the others, and that's the one where uh, Francis Ford Coppola's daughter uh, was in it, and uh, before she became a film director, and she got bagged for the role. She replaced Winona Ryder at the last minute. And Sophia Coppola was absolutely bagged out. And Francis Ford Coppola was accused of nepotism for casting her. Thankfully, she wasn't interested in being an actor. She's made some terrific films since. Um, but yeah, The Godfather Part Three, not a great end to that trilogy. Yeah, maybe I'm mixing up two then, aren't I? I think you're thinking of two. The, the argument is often what is the better film, The Godfather or The Godfather Part Two? Nobody thinks that Part Three is the standout. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm just, well, I'll challenge that. Roger Ebert, I've, I've quickly, he, he called it, um, he reckoned it was pretty good. Um, and he said he criticised people for, for um, critis- uh, he criticised people for saying Sophia Coppola was miscast. Right. Um, Ebert's colleague, Gene Siskel, also gave the film high praise. So, you know, it's not, not everybody thought it was a, Bit of a dog, eh? Even Leonard Moulton gave it three out of four. So there you go. <laughs> look, a- another series which delves into US history, and I've uh, something else. Look, I've fallen in love with this one pretty quick too. Is Gaslit? It's oh, um, yeah. up on Stan, and uh, look that that looks back at the whole Watergate saga. Um, Julia Roberts and Sean Penn, the lead um, cast on this one. And, wow, how good is Sean Penn in this? It's just amazing. I think there's going to be five episodes of this. Well, he's unrecognisable. He's got that much faith (laughs) on as playing the Attorney General. Um, But as soon as he opens his mouth, you know it's Sean Penn. But, like, how good is Julia Roberts any time she's in something where she speaks with a southern accent? I mean, (laughs) I'm just loving it. And the other thing that's really interesting about Gaslit for me is that, you know, there seems to be a lot of focus on the 1970s at the moment. I mean, to be coming on the heels of Minx and to also have that 70s vibe, and here's another show with the fashion, the music, uh, you know, Dan Stevens playing a peripheral character who's out there having a lot of sex and, you know, drugs and all of that. I I, I can't wait to see how this is going to play out. This this is a story about people on the fringes of that Watergate scandal that I'm unaware of. So the story's going to unfold to me. It's a surprise. I can't wait. Gaslit's the best American political show I've seen in a long time. Yeah, no, it's just just brilliant. Yeah, they've recreated the area so well and the acting and the characters. It must be great being an actor working on a show like this because the character you're playing just offers so much. I mean, I was a youngster in the 70s and the... Watergate was a big deal for me, and a lot yeah. of these people who were, were convicted of crimes was sort of became household names really back in the day. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> Julia Roberts and Sean Plen play Martha Mitchell and and um, John Mitchell, and just the dynamic between them is incredible. Without everything else going on around them, um, yeah. it's people like Gordon Liddy, um, Howard Hunt, James McCord, Jed Magruder, um, H. R. Holderman. John Ehrlichman, you know, um, just just an incredible bunch of crooks that um, broke into the Watergate Hotel in a bumbling sort of way to just sort of, you know, spy on the, uh, the Democrats, find out what they were up to. Um, 
it's just it's just fascinating stuff. I think these are dropping one week at a time too. So oh, wow. um, we, there's only been one episode up. I think the second one drops um, maybe Monday. Sunday or Monday. It definitely didn't drop Friday on Stan. It was yeah. April 25th. So was that Sunday or Monday? That's when it came up. Yeah, I think it's in the US on Sundays, which might be Monday morning. That'll be Monday here. Yeah. I've got yeah. a feeling. Um, yeah. it was, it's actually based on a podcast called Slow Burn, which I think was um, published by Slate in the US. So that's, um, that's, that's really worth some. So, yeah, look, there's some, some great uh, programming on offer. Now, another show, which is US, it's um, – sort of part of US history these days, and I think we mentioned it last time, but you mightn't have seen an episode yet, Secrets of Playboy. Yeah, I hadn't seen it. I was desperate to watch it. I've watched the first episode. Um, look, I don't think it's a great TV series. I don't know whether they're trying to save the material for the later episodes, but that first episode, uh, it didn't feel like there was a lot of content in it. Maybe they're building to something. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hugely supportive of any woman who was around that period who says that uh, they were being drugged or anything like that. I really, really am. That's, that's, that's not on. Um, but I'm yet to see uh, Secrets of Playboy convince me that Hugh Hefner is the monster that they're trying to make out. I guess they're saving it for later episodes. But, yeah, I, I, I just don't think it's a terribly made TV series at this point. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, well, I, haven't, I haven't dipped into that one yet, so it's still on my, um, my much-watch list. Look, the, I mean, we talked last week a lot about Netflix and the challenges they were having sort of with growth, with competition. They're fiddling with their business model. They might have some ads on a... On a, on a um, on a different tier. But, I mean, yeah. one of the challenges is, is their content good enough? I mean, we've talked about some cracking new series. So far we haven't talked about anything on Netflix, you know. Their competitors have really stepped up and there's some great oh, wow. alternatives out there, you know. Netflix, and we've talked about this a, a lot too, I mean, they, 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 they grew up as the first streaming service. They had all the best content. House of Cards was a much watch for everybody. And as I've said a lot of times, that was the one show that just kept me ticking over my Netflix subscription because I just yeah. it was it was easy. That was that that must watch show, which is enough to drive. You know, they talk about in TV one one hit series can turn around a network. I think it's yeah. the same with a streaming platform. One hit series will just keep you subscribed because you'll be if you're not watching the current series, you'll be waiting for the new one to come around. Maybe that's something like The Crown has that impact a little bit still for, for Netflix, but there's with so many series into that, it's not a, a new series anymore. But there's something new on Netflix you've been watching called Heartstopper. Yeah, this is a new uh, series about kids in high school. Uh, it's LGBT-focused. Um, there's an Australian connection, to, connection too because one of the producers is Emile Sherman who uh, won the Academy Award for the King's Speech. And I think what's lovely about a sort of a gay teen love story series is Heartstopper is not the first uh, series to do this. But I think it really shows uh, where young people are with this issue. I mean, to me as a 
you know, 50-something gay man to actually be watching a TV series where kids are out at high school. I mean, it was inconceivable to me when I was at high school that anyone would ever come out uh, and still be allowed to go to that school. But the fact that it's so commonplace now and the fact that you can make a beautiful series about it, and I've probably watched about four or five episodes, and it's really lovely. Um, All the episodes are there to watch, and I think that's the real difference we're seeing with Netflix now. They're putting all their episodes up to binge all at once, but all of the others are doing this slow burn and releasing it week by week because when you do that, you keep the buzz going for longer. It's interesting, isn't it, that strategy? Do you, you know, a lot of those uh, platforms, as you say, are now opting for one a week, but uh, yeah. Netflix is sticking by that look all at once. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a nice option to have, but you're right, it does keep that, um, it does keep it as a sort of a talking point for longer. Yeah, of course, um, Seesaw Films, the company that did Heartstopper, the sort of, I guess, Brit Oz production company, Ian Canning and Emil Sherman are partners. And, of course, they also um, won a recent Oscar for Power of the Dog. Yeah. Um, which was there too. And then one of their most recent TV series was The, the North Water. Um, now, you, you didn't mention, I think, Stephen Fry and Olivia Coleman are both in this as well too, right? I should have mentioned Olivia Coleman. I'm yet to see, see Stephen Fry. He's certainly not in the first few episodes, but Olivia Coleman is one of the mothers, which is beautiful because she's actually been in a TV series about uh, gay teenagers before that, you know, is so well-loved, uh, beautiful thing. That was such a great, great TV series. And uh, she's back again as the mother of uh, a young gay boy and uh, she's just so fabulous in it. She's yeah, not in it all the time, um, but no. when she's there, it's meaningful. Yeah. Now, the reason you mightn't have seen Stephen Fry, I think he's just a voice, actually. He's a ah, okay. voice head, headmaster Barnes, the, the head teacher oh, at the okay. Truman Grammar School. Does that ring a bell? Uh, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll listen very, very closely now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now, something else I haven't seen you've been watching is The Baby. I think it's an HBO series which must be on uh, Foxtel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a Brit. This was the one we talked about last week. A British horror comedy, and it's really out there. You know, there's this uh, woman who ends up at this house at the bottom of a cliff, and all these crazy things keep happening. And the next minute, she's got this little baby, and this baby is coming across as a little bit creepy. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely one that I'm going to keep watching. And by the way, when I talked about a beautiful thing uh, with Olivia Coleman, I was, of course, referring to Beautiful People, um, uh, starring Olivia Coleman uh, as the mother of this young gay boy. Yeah. Now, um, step away from drama for a moment. The, um, the Repair Shop Australia is about to launch. I think first episode's um, <clears throat> next week as we record this on yep. Foxtel. I guess it's on the Lifestyle Channel, I'm guessing. It is. Um, it is. Now, I, I, I quite – now, I haven't watched a lot of the UK one, but I do – I love the idea. Yeah, um, me too. Uh, of, pe- of specialist people that somebody brings in a treasure, a treasure from that they have at home. Um, it's usually a family connection, like it was their parents or, you know, a, a son or a daughter. Um, 
it's fallen into disrepair. They'd like to restore it and, um, and you know, give it some life and give it some sort of meaning in, in the current day. Now, for, I watched that first episode of the, of the new, of the Repair Shop Australia. Now there was a, a clock was restored, a model train brought back yeah. to life. I think it was a, a model of the Flying Scotsman and some antique jewellery, which I found fascinating. But it was all, I, I thought they almost milked the sort of emotion too much in that, in that episode. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's look, it's a bit slow. It is one of uh, you know, it's not the most dynamic series around. But I love the idea of it. I I just don't think that we should be living in a disposable age and throwing things out. Um, so the way that they actually do this from a family heirloom point of view, where it means so much to you if the object can be repaired, and I love that first story with the little boy who was obsessed with his grandfather's model railway and he is a real train obsessed little boy and I loved at the end when they unveiled the fixed up railway to him the host of the show Dean Ipovis was there in a you know a railway conductor's hat and they brought in some more you know memorabilia from New South Wales rail and they they took him inside to show him this model railway that was the part of the show I really liked and of course they're going to milk those tears whenever possible um, because otherwise it's, it's just a, sh- a show of people repairing things and why, you know, the, the, this show understands that you're repairing it because there's a real family connection to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I get it. And like you, I, I love the idea of it and it's just wonderful seeing, you know, the specialist, there's a metal worker, there's a leather crafts yeah. person, there's a jeweller, um, horologist what's a horologist clear i'm not even sure what that is and um a furniture restorer on the the guy who the electrical sort of guy i think it's paul he's the guy who restored the train um so it is fascinating but yeah i just i just thought they dwelled too long and it's almost as if they just i there was bits of it remind me 60 minutes they're just waiting for someone to shed a tear before they before they move on and I, i like the idea that it's slow and that that sort of helps the you know, the idea behind the show. We shouldn't be all just, you know, click, 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 um, moving on quickly. But, um, you know, I, I just thought, yeah, just just don't overdo it. Um, it's, it's just almost a bit too much. Um, Remind me of Tiny Oz, just, you know, those people who are specialists in a certain field. And when yeah. you watch Tiny Oz, you see they go to um, some little old ladies to make the trees and animals. They go to somebody else to make the trams. All of these people out here who have a specialty in this field, I mean, these shows are doing a great job in tracking down experts in this field because they're sort of an expert for everything, uh, and that's the part of the show I like. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely wonderful. Some of the stuff uh, coming up in in further episodes, there's a um, a, a, um, sort of an old, I guess, a manual sewing machine they work on. There's an Edison voice recorder. Um, and a headless rocking horse, which would be interesting to see what they do with that one, a miniature dollhouse um, and uh, an old stagecoach whip. So there's there's all sorts of odd things. I'd, I'd be interested in that if that um, it's sort of in an old barn, which if that was purpose-built for this show because it looks pretty new, but then the setup inside, they've got it, it could be like, you know, it could be from a, like a hundred years old, the way they've set up all the workbenches and all that. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's they spent some time on sort of getting the feel 
just right for the program. Um, now, at show this week, which created a fair bit of controversy and quite a lot of interest, and it rated very well. It was on Sky News. It was Piers Morgan Uncensored. Um, a, you know, a, a lot of people were sort of dissing this before it launched. I was willing to give it a go. And I've got to say, I mean, despite my uh, problems with the um, guest on the first, well, the first two episodes, um, Donald Trump, I thought we, uh, he conducted a pretty good interview. And I thought Piers Morgan gave him a reasonably hard time and got quite a lot of interesting stuff out of him, not all of which was reported. I mean, there was a lot of beat up about, uh, you know, Donald Trump walked out. We didn't actually. The sort of walkout was was carefully edited at the very end of the interview. But what Trump had to say about Ukraine and, I thought, Vladimir Putin was quite interesting. Just from remembering, of course, look, like it or loathe that Trump is, you know, a recently um, deposed, if you like, US president. And, you know, he met with um, Putin at least once, you know, maybe yeah. a couple of times. And um, the stuff he talked about, you know, how, I mean, Look, yeah, I wouldn't believe the spins Trump's trying to put on it. But look, oh, Putin would have invaded Ukraine, you know, if I was still president. Yeah, I thought, yeah, okay, sure. But, uh, and yeah. he didn't really elaborate on why not. But I thought it was a fascinating insight to hear from a recent US president. Look, I watched uh, the first 10 minutes of Piers Morgan's second show. Uh, I pissed myself laughing at the hysterical <laughs> opening credits with the we will cancel culture and woke snowflakes and these graphics that were coming up. And then all that happened for the first two episodes was episode tier two was Piers Morgan talking about how marvellous Piers Morgan was. Look at my <laughs> rating. Look at all the press I got around the world. Look at what the sun said about me. Look at what the London Times said about me, just me, 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 me. And I will note that the one uh, one uh, negative reviewer of the show said that one of the reasons that Piers Morgan was so good on Good Morning Britain when he did Breakfast TV was because there was a woman set sitting next to him who was able to goad him and tell him to shut up when it all got <laughs> too much. Piers Morgan is, you know, so self-obsessed. Uh, so whether or not that's going to translate to a show when he can't stop talking about himself, uh, or, or, you know, I'm not a fan. I won't be watching this anymore. Yeah, look, uh, his real problem is how do you follow up, you know? Yeah. And there was a lot, lot of interest. You have a great first guest. And Piers Morgan has said this himself. Look, it's easy to make a lot of noise around show one. And as you say, yeah, look, he's a great self-promoter. That's perhaps what he does better than anything. So yeah. maybe that maybe that's what's needed when you launch a new product. But who's going to come back? You know, I was there for the first episode. I haven't dipped in again so far in his first week because I haven't had a reason to go back there. There's been, you know, it's been all about Piers Morgan. You're dead yeah. right. There's been there's been no noise about. I wouldn't have any idea who's been on the rest of the week because it's just been it's just has been silence, you know. It's all about Piers Morgan. So why are you going to watch it in week two, week three, let alone in week nine or ten? I mean, he's, I think he's got a three-year deal with News Corp, so they're really going to need to work on the content apart from Piers Morgan. You know, they've okay, they've made the noise about the launch. Now let's focus on the guests, which is the only way you're going to get those viewers coming back. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a big ask to make a worldwide TV show when you've got different markets that you need to work to. Um, but, look, you know, he's happy with his opening night ratings, but I would note that uh, he's only getting about 14% more viewers in that time slot on Sky News Australia than what was there in the slot before. So, you know, it might be the number, rated, number one rated show on Foxtel for the night, but, you know... It's still under a hundred thousand viewers. Yeah, well, it's never it's never going to go above that, is it? I guess. And and in fairness, I mean, nothing on Foxtel really rarely breaks above that uh, that hundred thousand mark for the sort of if the, the live viewing, if you like. I mean, when you add up to all the um, the repeated screenings, I'm I'm talking about non sports a separate category. We know a lot of those sports channels get really big audiences: yeah. Fox Footy, Fox League. But if you get the news channels, that drama, those drama shows, unless it's like a Game of Thrones, um, Wentworth, they were the exceptions which really broke out above that sort of that 100,000 mark, if you like, and really drew big audiences. But I guess the Foxtel offer is it's spread across a whole broad range of channels and, you know, there's no one big, um, one big standout. There's just a lot of shows, you know, attracting a, a spread of all people. Look, something we're going to be starting new on the uh, Mercado and Manning podcast is, if you like, a Mercado on TV segment. Um, Andrew, you're, a, you're Australia's premier TV historian, I think, and something we've neglected, we haven't really called on your talents to look at. There's a lot of sort of older shows cropping up on, um, on streaming platforms, and I guess on the free-to-air uh, platforms too, like um, 7 Plus, 9 Now and 10 Play, part of their offer is, is shows that won't get a run um, live on their live, either the primary or the multi-channels, but yeah. they can exist. There is a niche audience which will like to dip back into these classic, classic comedies, dramas, a lot of them Australian, a lot of them US, um, Seems to be fewer sort of older British shows around, but there is a market for them. Have we seen like a lot of those old uh, UK police dramas do very well on 7-2 in the evenings, mm -hmm. um, get, get some pretty big audiences. But something that is on your radar this week, and again, something else you write about in your new Media Week uh, column at mediaweek.com.au, every Friday we publish that, is The Love Boat on 10. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening there. So it does feel to me, you're right, James, that the free-to-air catch-up sites are really pushing the nostalgia angle. It worked for them during COVID lockdown. Um, 10 Play popped up on my Foxtel IQ yesterday. You know, the, it, we know that Amazon Prime's just ended up on Foxtel IQ. Suddenly there was 10 Play. So I thought, okay, I'll have a look. Went in, there was the love boat. Now, The Love Boat has been screening before on Channel 10, but they only had the rights to the first one or two series, or maybe they had about five, but they were never screening the latter episodes. So I had a look at 10 play, all nine seasons. So I got very excited because there's a couple of key episodes of The Love Boat starring famous people in guest roles that I've been wanting to watch for years. So I went looking for a particular episode, and to my great disappointment, uh, the Love Boat is not a complete collection. There's a bunch of episodes missing and 10Play are mislabeling them. So it's not good enough. 
Um, I understand why the love boat's there and they want to do this because we know that uh, 10 and CBS are casting at the moment for the real love boat. They're turning it into another romance reality show. So uh, there may well be a market for the love boat. But seriously, if you're going to include 221 episodes, why not include 250 episodes? Uh, And if you have a look at my Media Week column tomorrow, you'll see which episode isn't there, which has been in the news lately, and I would have thought it was an obvious one to have. Uh, So, yeah, the love boat, uh, most of it, is up there now to watch on 10 play. And they're also playing it at 10 bold at 3.30 p.m. weekdays. Okay. It's interesting it's on 10 bold as well, yeah? Yeah, yeah. That, it's it's on uh, both channels. And, uh, it's you know, if, you, if anyone remembers The Love Boat, you know, it was a hugely successful show through the 70s into the 80s. In the 80s, it kind of uh, started losing relevance and like all American TV shows, they never know when to stop. So they started doing all these crazy things uh, for the ninth and final season. They changed the theme music. They got Dion Warwick to re-record the theme song, which didn't work. They brought in these kind of dances. Terry Hatcher was part of these kind of all of these love boat dances. Ted McGinley joined the show as a photographer, and he's always the kiss of death. And it's it's always <laughs> interesting to watch um, a hit show slowly going down the gurgler when common sense would say to you, hey, pull the pin and go out on a high. But American TV can never do that, James. Right. Okay. Well, interesting, interesting stuff. All righty. Now um, we'll just about wrap it up for this week. Now there's... Um you want to talk to me too a little bit about TV Week? Now, there's, they're going to be announcing the Logie nomination soon. What's happening yeah. there? Right. So in my latest issue of TV Week, and we know that TV Week is a magazine where Home and Away features really heavily. And so there's four pages of Home and Away content this week. There's this story here called Doing It for Mum, and it's a story about how Rue and Martha are going on a health kick. And then you turn the page and you see that there's a volleyball match where someone gets accidentally hit in the face with a volleyball, and TV Week calling this feud turns violent. Okay, let's TV Week exaggerating things for a bit, but, like, seriously, home and away, if your two biggest storylines of the week are Ruin Martha eating vegetable soup and butter bowls on a health kick and Sam Frost accidentally sending a volleyball into somebody's face, you need better script writers. Come on, guys, do better. We've just seen the uh, pin pulled on Neighbours after 37 years. Here's Home and Away, um, barely writing enough stories to to make TV week. Come on, get that, get Summer Bay happening again. So uh, that's my my, uh, TV week readings for this week. All right, oh, fascinating as always. That um, yeah, I mean, it's often Australia's number one drama, Home and Away. But then, uh, as we've said too before, that's because a lot of weeks it's the only Australian drama on TV, <laughs> and it and it manages to hold down its pride of place. That seven o'clock slot is pretty good, critical to um, getting big audiences, and it follows the number one news service is Seven's News between six and seven pm uh, right across Australia. In, most metro and all pretty much all regional markets, and that's going to feed in a big audience. So they 
they really need to um, maybe sharpen up the um, storylines there to, to keep home and away in its uh, time slot and to keep um, keep the UK audience you know, interested, which is critical to the business model for these uh, daily soaps. It's also important for our industry here. We need to have TV dramas on air all year round because that's how we create new writers and give actors a chance to work again. And if Neighbours is going off the air and all there is is Home and Away, you know, we want Home and Away to go for as long as possible, but they're not going to go for much longer if they're doing storylines about Buddha bowls. <laughs> Seriously, it's a two-page article in TV Week this week. Georgie Parker eating a bowl of vegetable soup. Come on, do better. <laughs> Very good. All right, Andrew Mercado, thank you. Look, um, we'll be back. We'll do this again next week. If this is the um, our weekly TV podcast, look, if you haven't subscribed yet, click the subscribe button. You'll get alerts when new episodes are up. They'll download automatically to your preferred um podcast platform and including next week we'll both make an effort to uh, at least dip into the uh, first episode of the offer the uh, dramatization of the making of the godfather series until then andrew um take care we'll um talk again next week thanks james have a great week